Let me introduce myself. My name is Philip Patterson, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and I get the privilege now of, of taking us into our next um, portion of the service. We're going to go into a Bible study. And so if you have your Bibles, you can, you can grab those and uh, uh, turn with me to John 13. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you can raise your hand, and one of our FIT team members will, will, will put a Bible in your hands. And if you don't have one, if you don't own a Bible, or if you don't own a Bible that you uh, understand the translation, we'd love to give that to you. That's just our gift to you for being here. Um, but turn, turn with me to John 13, if you would. So we've been making our way slowly but surely through the Gospel of John now for, for quite a while. Um, and today, as I mentioned last week, today we begin a, a, a new uh, kind of section of, our, of, of the Gospel, we, a new kind of chapter. Um, John, it doesn't say it in your Bibles, but if you, if you read it thoroughly, if you read it carefully, you'll see that John is really broken up into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 12 walk you through three years of public ministry for Jesus, three years of Jesus' public ministry. It's, you know, 12 chapters three years. It's a, it's a brief overview, okay? He just kind of soars over the, the three years of ministry. Chapters 13 through 21, John takes a very different apro- approach. He slows the pace down dramatically. For about nine chapters, we look, about Jesus, we look at Jesus' few last hours with his disciples and then his death and resurrection, okay? Twelve chapters, three years, nine chapters, a handful of hours, okay? He slows the pace down dramatically, and what we do is we get a really in-depth, detailed candid look at what Jesus says and what Jesus does with his disciples in his last remaining hours. And you know, if you only have a few hours left, you're really careful at what you do. You don't waste time there, do you? And so what we're going to be looking at over the next several months, just some really neat passages of scripture, lots to learn. I hope you'll be here for all of that. Um, So turn to John 13. If you remember, uh, we've been at this series now for seven, eight months or so. And what we've said from the beginning is that our our goal in this series was to discover the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ. Okay? We're trying to discover the identity and the mission of Jesus. Who is he and why did he come? Okay? Um, not, only, uh, not only do we get the, the, a clear and resounding answer right here in John 13 to those two questions, we also get a, a, the answer to a bonus question um, right here in John 13. Um, We do get those questions answered today, perhaps maybe here more than any other place in the Bible apart from the cross of Christ. This is a really beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But we also get the answer to a bonus question. And the bonus question is, um, that's Jesus, but who are we supposed to be? Right? This is who Jesus is. This is what he came to do. But how are we supposed to live our life? What what is This is the mission of Jesus, but what's our mission? This is the purpose of Jesus, but what's our purpose? Um, Imagine it like this. Imagine you have a buddy who uh, gives you a present, big box, you open up the present, and you take out uh, the, uh, this shiny new little machine, right? And it's got all kinds of little lights and beeping and, and whistling and all kinds of flashing lights, and it's very, very impressive. It's really, really neat, but you have no idea what it does, okay? No idea what it does. And so you experiment with it a whole lot, and you mess with it, and you try to figure it out, but you just can't figure it out. And so you ask your friend, dude, it's really cool, but what does it do? And your friend's like, I don't know. What do you do? Well, if you're smart, if you're wise, what you would do is you'd look around on the machine and you'd try to find a label. You'd try to find out the manufacturer and you'd contact the manufacturer and say, what does this machine do? What's this for? It looks really cool, but what's it for? Because if, you know, if you, if you you know, it could be really impressive, but you don't know what it does, what good is it? What, what use is it? So here's the really neat thing. In John 13, the passage we're going to look at today, we have the manufacturer. And he's going to tell us, here's what you're for. Here's what you do. Okay? Here, not only here's what I do, here's what I'm all about. But here's what you must do in response to that. So uh, let's go to John 13. Believe it or not, I haven't hyped up this text more than it should be. 
I'm not overstating it. This is one of the most beautiful, most profound pictures of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. Let's, let's, let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to bless our study as we dive in. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, amazing story. And Father, I pray, God, that we, um, I'm not sure where each of us stand with you today. I'm not sure what each of us is going on in our hearts. But Lord, I just pray uh, that you would speak to each one of us and you'd help take this story that happened 2,000 years ago and you'd help us to see that it is true and that it has application for our life today that there are great promises and great truths uh, in here, God, that we need to know and we need to uh, respond to today. And so I pray, Father, um, that you would have mercy on us, that your presence would be here with us today, that you would um, move in power, that your spirit would open our minds and our hearts and our eyes to see who you are and what you've done, and that we would respond in faith. Lord, that every single person in this room, in just a few minutes, when we walk out of here, that we walk away with freedom and joy and peace and hope and faith and love knowing who you are, what you've done, and knowing that we belong to you. God, we thank you so much for your word. Please bless us. Please speak to us. Um, please build us up as your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John 13, we'll start in verse 1. We're going to look at the first 20 verses. Let me read it slowly, and uh, let's listen to God's word. John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I told you I didn't oversell the text. It's an amazing passage of Scripture, isn't it? It's been a real challenge to know with all that's, all that's being said there, what can we talk about today? What's, what, what, what do we need to hear? And this is, let me, let me just point out three things that jumped off the page to me, the, the loudest things out of this passage of Scripture to me. Three contrasts. Our kingdom versus God's kingdom. A self-seeking life versus a self-giving life. And finally, effort versus grace. We're going to look at three contrasts that we see here. 
our kingdom versus God's kingdom, a self-seeking life versus a self-giving life, and then finally, effort versus grace. And each of those are three major topics that deserve not only a message of their own, a series of their own. We're going to look at all three today. First, let's look at our kingdom versus God's kingdom. Look again at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay, so Jesus knows that his hour had come. What's his hour? John uses this expression a lot in his, go- in his gospel. His hour. Well, in the disciples' mind, we talked about this last week, in his disciples' mind, their, their idea is that, well, his hour is his hour of, you know, glorious victory. Right? As you remember, the, the disciples expected Jesus to you know, uh, march into Jerusalem, banners waving, army of soldiers behind him, sword blazing, running out the Roman oppression. That was their idea of the Messiah. That was their idea of the Savior. They wanted Jesus to come in with the army, you know, fire in his eyes, and, and, and cast off the Romans and set up that new kingdom of Israel right? that was going to last forever, this new kingdom of Israel. The disciples, in fact, um, Luke tells us, that very day that Jesus washes their feet, that very day, the disciples had spent that day arguing with one another over who was going to be the greatest, right? They could just tell. They knew that something was coming. They knew the time was coming to an end. The way Jesus had been talking, they knew it was coming close. So the disciples are arguing, you know, who's going to be sitting in his right hand? Who's going to be sitting in his left? Where are they going to be seated in the administration? You know, you can be secretary of state. I'll be secretary of defense. You be this and you be that, Okay? You're not worthy of being this. You can, you can be the Secretary of Interior. This is what you can do over here. That's what you're worthy of. I'm going to be the greatest. And so we're told in Mark that Jesus that day pulled them aside and rebuked them. This is what he said in Mark 10. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom. The disciples are right about that, but it was not going to look at all like the disciples had expected. Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom. And it's what we've said is, when you usher in a new kingdom, when a new king comes to the throne, it's, it's very similar to what happens when a new administration comes into our government. When we have a new administration step into the executive branch of our government, oftentimes there's a lot of things that change. Goals change. Value systems change. Policies change. New direction changes. Sometimes even laws. When you have a new king step into the throne, everything gets you know, changed upside down. You're going to have new laws put in place, new goals, new direction, new policies, all of that, a new way of doing things. Jesus says the new kingdom has come. The world's way of doing things, it's gone, it's past, it's done. He says the world says that if you want to be great, you got to get power. But Jesus says the new king, God's kingdom has come. If you want to be great, you lay down your power for the sake of others. The world says protect your rights at all costs. That's what our world tells us. Protect your rights. Jesus says, lay down your rights for the sake of others. The world says, get as much as you can. Take as much as you can. Jesus says, give away as much as you can. That's what it means to be great. This defines God's kingdom. Jesus is about to gain the victory of all victories, show himself to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And how does he do it? Not by raising the biggest army and coming and marching forward in victory. He brings in God's kingdom. He he wins the victory of all victories by going to the cross, by being arrested, by being interrogated, by being tortured, by being crucified, penniless and alone. We said 
last week, Keller, Keller says it so well. Tim Keller says it so well. The world says the way up is up. Jesus says the way up is down. That's, that's God's kingdom. That's the new value system that, that, he is, that he came to establish. The way up is down. The question that comes to mind, though, thought about this this week. The question that comes to mind, though, is why does Jesus uh, do what he does? We say the way to go up, if you want to be great, lay down your power. But here's the deal. Jesus was already great. Jesus doesn't need to go down to go up. He's already up. The train of his robe fills the temple. The angels have been singing his praises. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty for who knows how long. So if Jesus is already great, then why does he need to go down? Why does he need to humble himself? And the answer, of course, is right here in verse 1. This is why Jesus chooses to do what he does. What he does. Verse 1 says, The feast of the Passover was at hand. The feast of the Passover was at hand. And we know, in fact, from the other gospel accounts of this story here, that the supper that Jesus and his disciples are having together is actually the Passover meal. And most of us are, are familiar with what Passover is. Maybe not all of us. Let me just explain and make sure we're all on the same page. Passover was an annual meal that the Jews had uh, that commemorated a defining moment in the history of Israel. Back centuries and centuries before the time of Jesus, the nation of Israel had been enslaved to Egypt and to uh, Pharaoh. And so God was going to deliver uh, the nation of Israel. And so God you know, raises up Moses and he sends a whole bunch of plagues down on Egypt. And then after doing, you know, sending all these plagues, trying to loosen Pharaoh's grip on Israel, he sends one final plague. God was going to draw his sword of divine justice. He was going to draw his sword of justice and the justice, we're told in Exodus, was going to fall on everyone. It was not going to pass over the Jews just because they were Jews. We're told in Exodus that in every home, every home, there was going to be death under the wrath of God. Death because of the justice of God. And the only way that your family could escape was to put your faith in God's provision, God's substitute. God said that every family was to sacrifice a lamb, slay a lamb, and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your home as a sign of your faith in God. And so when justice came down, it either fell on your family or you took shelter under that substitute, under the blood of the lamb. And if you did accept that shelter, if you did accept that substitute, then death passed over you. God's wrath passed over you. And that's why they call it Passover. And the Jews still celebrate this, uh, this deliverance to this day. They, they celebrate it every year with a special meal. And so Jesus and his disciples were eating this special Passover meal, remembering how God delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt. And so during the dinner, Jesus, Jesus was presiding over this meal, and Jesus, as tradition said, was supposed to stand up at different times within that meal, and he was supposed to hold up certain elements within the meal, and it's supposed to show the symbolic reminders of the various aspects of God's deliverance, okay? Like, for example, he's supposed to stand up at a certain time, and he's supposed to hold up the bread, and he says, this is the bread, that our, uh, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness, that's, that's part of the, the traditional meal. You stand up and you hold up the bread. This is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. But when Jesus stood up that night at his last supper with his disciples, and he picked up the bread, this Passover meal, he breaks the script, doesn't he? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. He holds up the bread and he says, this bread is my body, broken for you. The, the bread of affliction, he holds it up and says, this represents me. And he breaks the bread in half. And then he picks up the wine and he says, this cup represents my blood, which will be poured out for many. You understand what he's doing? You understand what he's saying? 
He broke the script that had been recited for generation after generation after generation after generation and says basically that all of these earlier deliverances, all of these you know, earlier sacrifices, all of the lambs at Passover were all pointing to him. And in fact, what's really interesting is if you, if you read it closely, you'll see that in all the Gospels that, that talk about this Last Supper, do you know there's never actually any talk of a main course on the table? There always would have been, at Passover meal, there always would have been a lamb on the table. There's no mention of lamb on the table. There's mention of bread, there's mention of wine, but there's no mention of lamb. You know why I think that is? Well, because they're eating this Passover meal early. They're eating it on Thursday. Um, the, the Passover lambs wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been even slaughtered. It wouldn't have been sacrificed yet to make ready for the meal. They're eating this meal early. This means, if you look at the timeline, Jesus actually was being, he would have been crucified the next day on that Friday. Jesus was actually being crucified at the very same time that the lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. The lamb wasn't on the table that night because the lamb was at the table that night. The lamb wasn't on the table because the lamb was at the table. That's why, that's why John the baptizer, when he sees Jesus coming out to him at the Jordan, cries out, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus is, the, is, is whom we, we take shelter under. Jesus is our true substitute. He is our shelter. Isaiah 53, and this was written hundreds of years before Christ. Isaiah 53 says, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He's prophesying about Jesus. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is our substitute. Amen? Jesus came not to throw down, but to be thrown down. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to take up power. He came to lay down his power for the sake of others. This is how he brings in God's kingdom. At this meal, Jesus gives us a really clear statement about what he has come to do. And then if that were not enough, then he stands up and he gives us the clearest visual illustration possible. Verse 4, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And as most of you are aware, this is an incredible thing that Jesus does here. Some of the significance is going to be inevitably lost on us because we don't live in a first century Eastern culture. Um, but this is an incredibly humbling thing to do. In that day, it was actually illegal to ask your Jewish servant to touch your feet, to wash your feet. Gentile, if you had a Gentile slave, that's a different story. In some provinces, you couldn't even ask a Gentile slave to do it. Some people, in some provinces, they, they, they acknowledge there are some things you can't ask anybody to do. And you can understand why. I mean, these guys traveled in sandals, right? Um, the sandals they wore were basically just soles on the bottom of their feet, you know, connected to their feet with just little straps. And they, they walked through these dirty, dusty roads for long distances all day. And they didn't just share the roads. It wasn't just dirt that was stuck to their feet at the end of the day, right? Because they're not just sharing these roads with people. They're sharing these roads with animals, all kinds of animals that are walking, donkeys and so on, right? So... You can just imagine the state of their feet when you live in a hot, arid climate like that. Your feet at the end of the day are going to be dirty, are going to be smelly, are going to be blistered. And Jesus 
gets up from the table and basically takes on not just the role of a slave, lower than a slave. And he goes down and he bends down and he kneels at their feet and he takes them in, her hands, takes them in his hands and he washes the dirty, grimy feces off of their feet. Unbelievable. And we know that not only is this a beautiful physical act, but it points us to an even greater spiritual reality. Think about what this is showing us. Jesus Christ, in the truest sense, rose from his place of honor, stepped off of his throne, took off his robes of glory, took on flesh, took on the form of a servant. Isaiah says he was nothing to look at. He wasn't anything special. He took on the form of a servant, poured out his life, poured out his blood that our dirtiest stains might be made clean, that we might be made clean. This, this beautiful picture that, that Jesus gives us is pointing us to the cross. Jesus came to die. And listen, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, he's mentioned a couple times here. Judas, one of the 12 disciples, understands this at least to some degree, and it repulsed him. He understood that, that Jesus now was not going to rise up with a sword, but was going to fall on the cross. And he wanted nothing to do with it. He was far more concerned with his idea of a kingdom than God's kingdom. And that leads me to my second contrast. It's this, the self-seeking life versus the self-giving life. Judas was there that night. Every scholar I, I read on this this last week said the very same thing. Jesus, the way it's worded, Jesus seems to have washed 12 pairs of feet, not 11. Judas was there that night and he washed all of the disciples' feet. And that means that he washed Judas's feet that night. And if you're not all that familiar with the story, maybe, you, maybe this is new to you, let me just fill you in. Judas is the man that betrayed Jesus. In just a few short hours from what we just read in John 13, in just a few short hours, Judas would be the man to lead a mob of armed men to, to Jesus' secret place where he prayed. Judas would show them the way lead an, an armed mob there, and they would arrest Jesus. They would take him to an illegal trial um, that, would, that was held at night. He would be interrogated. He would be beat. He would be mocked. He would be spit on. He would be tortured and then eventually crucified the next day. And it was Judas who pulled the trigger. It was Judas who pulled the trigger. And so I, I thought about this a lot this week. Ver, verse 1 says that Jesus knew that his hour was at hand. Um. That means that Judas didn't surprise Jesus by what he did. Uh, he, he wasn't like, oh, Judas, I had no idea. You've been stealing from our money bag this whole time? You know, you're, you ha- you've, been, you've been plotting with the Pharisees this whole time? Jesus was not surprised at this. Jesus knew that his hour was at hand and that Judas was going to do this. Now think about it. If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do tonight? If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do tonight? Probably something similar to what Jesus did. You'd invite all of your friends and family over. And you'd talk together, and you'd laugh together, and you'd cry together, you'd pray together, maybe sing together. You'd you know, tell them all the things that you, you, know, you want to say, or you want to get out everything that you want to say to your nearest and your dearest. Do you think that you would have invited the man who's going to murder you the next day? Probably not. I might, but I would beat him, and I would lock him in the closet, and I would run, okay? <laughs> but that's not what Jesus does, right? No, he eats with him. 
And again, some of the significance is lost on us because we don't live in that Eastern culture. But in that day, in that culture, to eat with somebody like that, that's a, that's a big deal. That's a statement of friendship. That's a statement of affection. Jesus eats with the man. He knows what he's going to do. And not only that, but then he gets down and he kneels down in front of Judas and he takes his feet in his hands and he washes them. I've, I've often wondered this, and again, I've thought through this a lot this week. Why would Jesus waste precious minutes of his last few hours on this earth serving a man who he knows, he knows that he's already made his mind up? Judas, by doing this, Judas is not going to change his mind. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Judas is going to go to his death rejecting God and, and, and his grace. So why would Jesus waste precious minutes out of his time to engage this man, to eat with him, and to wash his dirty feet? Here's the question that went through my mind this week, and I'm just going to confess to you. Why would Jesus do this? What is he getting out of it? What is Jesus going to get out of this? Why would he take that time? And when that question went through my mind, it hit me. Philip, what a skewed perspective you have on serving. What a skewed perspective you have on serving. Here's what I came to realize. Far too often, I, I'm only speaking for myself here, far too often, I serve people simply to see a return on my investment. Far too often, I only serve people when I think I'm going to get a return on my investment. I want something to show for it. But this is not the way of Jesus. This is what I was reminded of this week. Jesus does not primarily serve us to get a response from us. This is hard for us to hear because it makes it less about us, and we really like to have everything about us. Okay? But here's, here's what I think the Bible teaches. Jesus does not primarily ultimately serve us to get a response from us or to get anything from us. Ultimately, primarily, Jesus loves us and serves us to honor the Father. To honor the Father. Jesus knew that this act was not going to change Judas's mind, but he did it anyway. Why? Because it honored the Father. He did it for God's sake. It honors God. We too are to love and to serve people even when we get nothing out of it even when they don't ascribe to our faith system, and they never will, even when, when they push back, even when they hate us, even when they plot against us, we still love them, we still serve them. Why? Because it honors God. Jesus was not motivated simply by a return on his investments, nor should we be. So the question that, that I've been asking myself, and I just encourage you to ask yourself as well, when we love and serve somebody, what is our motivation? What is it that's motivating us? Motives matter to God. We've seen, we see that in the Bible, don't we? Motives matter to the Lord. And there are a whole lot of different motives that could drive us to serve. Some of us will serve uh, out of a sense of guilt, right? You know, we've done some stupid stuff in our life, and so we think, if I can just do enough good things for other people, then maybe that will kind of balance the scales out a little bit, right? It will outweigh some of the other junk in my life. Let me tell you two things. Number one, the Bible, uh, as you know, number one, the Bible says that our efforts at righteousness are like filthy rags to a holy God. To, when, you, when you consider a holy God who has holy standards, our efforts at goodness and righteousness are like filthy rags. Okay? There's nothing that we can do in our efforts to earn favor with God. That's what the Bible teaches. Number two, if you're just doing good things to wipe away your debt, 
ultimately, you're not actually serving God for God's sake. You're serving God for your sake, right? If we serve out of a sense of, of guilt, then it's nothing more than court-ordered community service. When, when, you, when you drive by people on the road, you know, the, the guys who, who are, are out of, you know, doing community service, court-ordered community service, does your heart just ever just, uh, just really start pumping? Wow, that is so sweet of them. That is so great. Out of the kindness of their heart, they're out. No, it's court-ordered community service. I'm grateful that they're doing it, but, it, but it's not out of the, the, the kindness of their heart. It's the same thing. If I do nice things for my wife to, to try to get her to forgive me for a bunch of dumb stuff that I've done, I'm not serving Jessica for her sake. I'm serving Jessica for my sake, right? There's no honor for Jessica in that. Some of us may serve uh, people, serve God, to gain an identity. This is where we find our self-worth. We do it because we want to feel good about ourselves. We do it because we want to feel justified as a person. This is how we find our identity. But again, if this is our motivation, I'm going to come back to it, then our motivation ultimately is self-seeking. Um, the result is that we will constantly need to know in life, are we measuring up? Am I justified? We're going to need to know that we're constantly measuring up, which means you're going to live a life comparing yourself to others. And all that's going to do is lead you to a life of insecurity and judgmentalism. Some of us may serve because we've got a bad case of the gimme gimmies. We serve others so that we can build up some IOUs, and I'll just confess to you, this one's mine. Jess will tell you. She probably won't tell you. She could tell you. Um, th- this is mine. Uh, I think if I do this for Jessica, and I do that, and I do this, and I do that, then Jessica will, oh, I'll just take those IOUs, and I'll put them right there, and I'll whip them out when I'm ready to cash in. And I get frustrated when she doesn't see that. <laughs> Seriously, on, on every, I shouldn't say this, on every Sunday night, almost every Sunday night, Jessica will go to uh, a Bible study with several of you here. And many of the Sunday nights, one of my little traditions, this week of traditions, is I clean the house. And I try to clean it top to bottom, right? That's, that's, I think it would be great to start the week, everything fresh and so on. Um, and by the time she gets home, you know, I'm pretty tired. It's been a long day and... and uh, you know, if she, if she just walks in and says, wow, the house looks great. Thank you so much for what you did. If that's all she says, you know, there's this inner tor- turmoil inside of me. I'm thinking, that's it? You got to give me more than that. You know, I'm ba- basically what I want her to do is to fall at my feet and sing my praises. Oh, my goodness, Philip. You are God's gift to this home, to this family. Basically, that's what I expect. And when I don't get it, I get frustrated. Well, who am I doing the service for? Because I love her and because I want to bless her and I want to bless my family or because I expect something in return. I'm sure I'm the only one that does that. <laughs> so what is our motivator for serving? The answer, of course, is the gospel. We love because he first loved us. You see, we don't have to serve out of a sense of guilt anymore. Why? Because in Christ we're not guilty. We, there, we have nothing to make up for anymore. Christ has taken our guilt away. We don't have to serve anymore to to gain an identity. Why? Because we are sons of the living God through Jesus Christ. That's our identity. We don't have to serve because we have the, you know, gimme gimme's anymore, because we want IOUs, because we want to get something. We already have everything in Jesus Christ. Now we get to serve simply out, out out of this freedom, out of this joy, out of this new identity, out of this peace. It's only through the gospel that we're able to really serve God for God's sake. It's only through the gospel that we're actually able to serve others for others' sake and not our own sake. 
We can give away everything we own because our treasures are found in Jesus. We can serve because we've been served. We can be rejected because we've been accepted in Christ. We can lose our life because we found true life in him. Verse 13, again, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know, at the end, we're not going to touch on this, we don't have time, but verse 20, the, the way this ends basically says, um, if they want to receive me, they're going to receive you, right? If they receive you, they've received me, and if they receive me, they've received the Father. Basically, Jesus, throughout the gospel, is going to continue to tell the disciples, you are going to go out and be my representatives. You are going to go out and be my ambassadors. And then he sets this example. In just a matter of weeks, the the disciples are going to hit the streets of Jerusalem and then on, and they're going to go and they're going to represent Jesus Christ to a lost and a dying world. And Jesus says here, this is how you must act. You are going to be representing me. This is how you serve. This is how you live. Uh, Remember I told you the, the flashing machine with all the little flashing lights? This is how we are to live. This is what we are to do. This is our mission. He said, if you want to be my ambassador, if you want to represent me, if people to receive me, this is what you must do. Give your life away. So when you serve others, what's your motivation? Is it to get a return on your investment? Would your life be characterized as self-seeking or self-giving? I hope that you would take some time this week and consider that question. And the key to having that self-giving life is by understanding and embracing the self-giving love of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And that leads me to our final contrast here. Effort versus grace. Look one more time at verse 3 with me. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Again, I, I sat staring at my computer screen for who knows how long um, this week, trying to figure out what do you say, how, what do you write, what can be said to adequately describe what we just read. The Creator, God, kneeling at the feet of His creation. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, makes Himself a slave. It's beyond comprehension. I thought, what do I say? What do you say? The disciples had, the disciples had already professed their faith in Jesus, not only as, as their Savior, but also as the Son of God. They had, they had declared, they had understood that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is literally God in the flesh, God incarnate. And now God incarnate is kneeling at their feet, washing their dirt and their grime. Think for a moment. What would you have done if you were in their place? Seeing Jesus at your feet, what would you have done? And obviously, this is about much more than dirty feet, isn't it? It's about much more than feet and dirt. Consider for a moment the lowest, darkest, dirtiest part of your heart. God has descended to that place and He wants to wash you and cleanse you. How do you respond? John tells us how at least one of the disciples responded. He tells us what Peter says. He says, Lord, 
Are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, you don't understand it now, Peter, but you will soon. You'll understand soon. Peter says, no, you'll never wash my feet. Which is ironic, isn't it? He just said, Lord, no. Master, no. King, no. How often we do that? We call Jesus our king and then tell him what he can and can't do in our life. Peter says, no, you'll never wash my feet. In fact, if you look at the literal Greek there, what he says is, never, not ever shall you wash my feet. Peter's basically telling him, Lord, no, you're too holy and I'm too dirty. You can't come into contact. You can't come that close. You can't come to that part of me. You can't come that intimately. What does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, well, Peter, if you don't get that clean, then you can have no share with me. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, I'm not walking around with you like that. You either take care of it or I will. That's not what he says. He says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I, Peter, it's the only way. This is the only way. I must wash you. If you want to have a relationship with me, if you want to have communion with me, fellowship with me, it is I and I alone that can make you clean. And this is the principle that we, that we need to embrace today. You and I cannot clean up ourselves through our own efforts, as hard as we might try sometimes. You and I cannot clean ourselves up. It must come through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Friends, Jesus went to the cross and he paid the penalty that was necessary for our sins. We have committed a crime against our king. We have turned away and we have gone our own way and there is justice that is necessary. Our God is just. But if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done, then you will, you will receive the forgiveness that he has purchased with his blood. If you put yourself under the shelter of the blood of the lamb, the wrath of God will pass over you. Jesus is our substitute. He took our place. He took our justice. He died on our behalf. And it's the only way that we can be saved. If he does not wash us, we cannot be saved. So how have you responded to God's offer of grace? John mentions uh, the name of two disciples in the story. We've already talked about them both, Judas and Peter. And if you look at these two men, Judas and Peter, they have drastically different responses to the offer of God's grace. Peter, if you keep reading, if you remember, Peter in the end says, okay, Jesus, then wash all of me, every bit of me, head, hands, all of it, wash all of me. Judas, on the other hand, goes to his death rejecting God's grace. As I was thinking about this passage this week, for whatever reason, my mind went back to the, to the musical Les Mis. And you all seen it? Um, one of the primary themes in this story is grace and response to that grace. Uh, you'll remember if you've seen it, in one of the most moving scenes, um, Jean Valjean, who's one of the main characters, um, is out on parole after he served 19 years in this French prison. And he's out on parole. And he, he's going and he's walking around trying to find a place to stay at night. And he gets, keeps getting denied shelter at place after place after place because on his passport, it says that he was a former convict. Right? And so nobody will let him in. Um, but he's finally welcomed in by this bishop. This really kind and sweet bishop who says, you know, what's mine is yours. Really this hospitable bishop. Valjean repays the bishop by running off in the middle of the night with the church of silver. Um, the police catch up with Valjean. 
And Valjean lies to him and, sa- and says, well, the bishop, bishop gave it to me. He gave me the silver. And so the, the police take them back and they say, is this true? Remember what happens? The bishop not only shows him mercy, not only doesn't turn him into justice like he deserves, but he says, you forgot the candlesticks. And he gives him the candlesticks. Right? Not only did he, mercy means not getting what you deserve. Grace means getting what you don't deserve. He not only received mercy by not being turned into justice, he received grace. He was given free gifts along with that. He received mercy and grace from this bishop. And when he does, Jean Valjean is left utterly confused, like, what just happened? What just happened? Uh, he, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to think. Because up until that point, his identity was that he was a thief. He was just another number in the prison system. He was a thief. But at this point, he starts questioning everything that he knows about life. And if you've seen the most recent movie, it's almost like, it's like his head is swirling with what just happened. This, this, this act of grace undoes him. And this is what he says. One word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife, but he told me that I have a soul. Is there another way to go? That's the question he asks himself. Is there another way to go? And friends, there is another way to go. And if you've seen the story, if you remember the story, this is the way that Valjean takes. He he goes another way. He, He receives that grace and it changes him. It utterly changes him from that moment on. You know, he's not a perfect guy by any means. He still does some dumb stuff. He's not a perfect guy by any means, but from that point on, his life is fueled more by gratitude than by greed. It's, 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 It's marked more by giving than receiving. It's marked more by love than fear. And friends, that's how Peter responded. He didn't understand the grace that was being offered to him. He was bewildered. He was confused, but he received the grace of Christ, and the grace of Christ changed him from that point forward. And not only, if you continue to read about Peter's life, not only did he go on to live for Christ, embodying that self-giving love, but he proclaimed the message of Christ and ended up dying for Christ. Peter was able to embody the self-giving love of Jesus because he had experienced it personally. But there's another person in Les Mis that we should consider. Remember Inspector Javert? We meet Inspector Javert. He's the antagonist in the story. Remember Inspector Javert, when you first meet him, he, he's a guard at the prison where Valjean is serving his time. And um, when Valjean first gets parole, Javert looks down at him and says, um, basically, um, you will always be a criminal. You will always be defined by what you have done. Your identity is completely wrapped up in your past. You'll always, always, always just be a prison number. Um, if Valjean shows, what it, shows us what it means to be saved by grace, Javert shows us what it means to be ensnared by the law. Javert practically embodies the law. His, his motto is basically what you do defines you. What you have done defines you. And if you remember the story, Valjean and Javert, their paths cross again, right? Remember Valjean ends up breaking parole and he goes off this little town and he becomes a mayor. Javert happens to pass by and recognizes him and, and makes it, you know, starts chasing him, makes it his personal vendetta in life to put Valjean back in prison. But here's the thing. If you remember the story, every time that Valjean and Javert come across one another, Valjean um, treats him with grace treats him with kindness, treats him with compassion. He doesn't treat Javert like he's his mortal enemy, even though Javert is trying to put him back in prison. He even goes so far as towards the end, he ends up saving Javert's life. Instead of doing away with the man who's trying to put him back in prison once and for all when he had the chance, Valjean shows him mercy, shows him grace. And what we, what we, what we see is that this absolutely undoes Javert. 
It completely destroys the foundation that he has built his life upon. This doesn't make sense. What he has seen doesn't make sense, this grace that he has received. Victor Hugo, who wrote the story, said this about Javert's inner conflict. This is what he wrote. He said, Jean Valjean confused Javert. All the axioms that had served as Javert's supports of his life crumbled away before this man. A compassionate convict, kind, helpful, returning good for evil, returning pardon for hatred, loving pity rather than vengeance, preferring to destroy himself rather than destroy his enemy, saving the one who had struck him. You remember how Javert responded to this? Damned if I'll live in the dead of a thief. I am the law and the law is not mocked. Granting me my life today, this man has killed me so. And then Javert jumped into a river and killed himself. Javert chose death over grace. And that's what Judas did. Judas chose death over grace. He could not come to grips with what he saw in Jesus. It so wrecked his worldview. He could not handle, listen, he could not handle a God that came to die. He could not handle the God that washes feet. So many people miss God because they're looking up rather than looking down. The the message of Christianity is not that you and I need to struggle and climb and battle and ascend our way to the highest of heavens to find God. The message of Christianity is not that we need to ascend. The message of Christianity is that God descended. And this is offensive to many. You know why the cross is so offensive to people like Judas and Javert? is because this is what the cross says. The cross says that your situation is so dire, so bleak, that you are so hopeless and helpless that the only way that you can be saved is if God himself comes down and dies for you. That is offensive. The cross says your only hope is if I come and I die for you. But the cross also says that you are so loved and you are so valued and you are so adored that God was glad to die for you. Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. For the joy, what's the joy? Us. We are the joy set before him. This is the best news in all of the world, that God was glad to die for us. When we get that and we walk in that, we receive that, how can, how can we walk around with anything but freedom and peace and joy and hope and love and life after that? We are saved by grace, not by our own efforts. Are you walking in that forgiveness today? Have you received that forgiveness? Has the kneeling Savior washed you clean? Let's pray together. What I'd like to do today is I'd like to suspend. I know I went a little long today, guys, and I'm sorry. Um, what I'd like to do, though, today is I'd like just to respond. The, the band's going to come up. Alita's just in a couple more songs. But what I'd like to do before we sing together is I'd like just to respond to get today in prayer. What I'd like to do is just in the quietness of your own hearts, uh, own hearts I'd like to lead you in a time of focused prayer. I'm just going to lay some stuff before you. I'm going to ask that if you would, would you, would you take some time and, and, and pray these things to the Lord? Would you be willing to ask, your, ask yourself, this morning, is there anything in my life, any area of my life where I am saying to Jesus, Lord, never, not ever will you wash this? Is there anything in your life that you are trying to distance from Jesus because you think it is too dirty, it is too much? Please hear me when, when I say that, uh, or when, excuse me, when Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you can have no share with me. You can have no communion, no sustained fellowship with me. Don't hold anything back. Take some time this morning. Let's just take a minute or so and let's let's confess some things to the Lord and ask him to wash us clean.
still with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. How is the Lord calling you into a greater life of self-giving love? Is there a relationship perhaps in your life or maybe you need to begin investing with a, with a greater sense of abandonment? Maybe you find yourself serving in this uh, relationship only when you expect a return on your investment. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe there's another relationship. Maybe it's your relationship with your finances or with your time. If you are a follower of Jesus in here today, would you be willing to ask the question, Lord, how are you leading me to be to, to a life of greater sacrificial service and love to others? Ask him that. you're here today um, and you're not following Jesus but you're ready to make that decision you never said to, to, to God Lord wash me wash all of me like Peter said Romans says that if you can if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved if you want to make that decision today we want to make space for that. I want to give you an opportunity to say that right where you are, just in the quietness of your own heart, you don't need to say any magic words. Basically, you just tell God, God, I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sins because you love me and you don't want to be separated from me. I receive the forgiveness that you have purchased with your blood. I accept your forgiveness and I give you my life. I surrender my life to you. If you are ready to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, you can say something like that. I'm just going to give you the, the time to do that this morning. celebrate you and to, to uh, meditate on what you have done uh, as you washed the feet of the disciples as you wash us today as you went to the cross and you poured out your blood and where we can find cleansing god we pray that you would help us not just to receive the self-giving love that you have shown us but god then we'd embody it to our to our neighbors and to our city to our families to our co-workers you'd help us to to pour out our life for the sake of others may twin oaks church be marked by self-giving love for the glory of your name in jesus name we pray amen